0: Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor the Mic. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. Powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at BurnsClan. Follow at your own risk. And joining me as always is the CEO of The Witness, Inc. The man, the myth, the legend. The two time best selling author, Mr. Blue Check verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother?
1: There you go, there you go. Uh my feet is tired, but my soul is rested.
0: Ah, uh, come on, brother. Yeah. Oh, come on. This joy that we have, the world didn't give it and the world can't, can't take
1: it. Take it away. Come on, bro. In one of those weeks, you know? Yeah.
0: I'm amped, bro. I think the week it's been for us, the energy that we felt at the beginning of this week when we were together in Little Rock, Arkansas for the release of your new book, How to Fight Racism, and then the drain that we feel is really a microcosm I think of what our listeners are feeling as well.
1: Mhm. Mhm. For sure. Yeah, for I think
0: sure. there's like that duality and I'm I'm glad we get to talk about that today. Listen, man, it's the first episode of 2021 and I am so excited. I can't think of a better way to start then by acknowledging, brother, you just released your second book, How to Fight Racism, and the people have been loving it, talking about it. I know that feels good for you.
1: Absolutely. That has been by far the best part of releasing the second book. I think there were a lot of people who read my first book, The Color of Compromise. They appreciate it, and they're showing a lot of love for the second book. And what really floored me was uh, a little while ago, during the first week, that that first week of book sale is, is really, really important. So I just put out this message on all the socials that was like, hey, if it's any way possible and y'all can buy this book the first week, that would be phenomenal. And the amount of support that people showed, they were so eager to help. So I had several folks doing giveaways of their own accord. I had people retweeting and just showing love. And so Uh, I really thank y'all from the bottom of my heart. That has been the most memorable part of this book launch in the midst of a tumultuous and chaotic week. So thank you.
0: Man, I'm so proud of you. And we had so much fun in Little Rock, Arkansas for the 24 hours uh, that we were there. And uh, man, I hope people really enjoyed the online book launch because we talked about some things that we haven't talked about on the podcast that maybe you haven't talked about anywhere. So I need people yeah. to go to The Witness of Black Christian Collective on Facebook and watch that replay. And you can also watch the original event as well, but we just replayed it um, a couple of days ago on that social media page. So I also have something to thank the people for, brother. I, I am feeling grateful. I'm happy. I'm ecstatic. Because listen. PTM listeners, y'all showed out in 2020. I
1: just
0: want to acknowledge y'all. Y'all been killing the game. Listen, we just recently released our total downloads for the year. And man, in a pandemic, we still got over 491,000 downloads just in 2020. Just in 2020. And people have asked, is that your biggest download year? No, (laughs) not even close. But it's a pandemic. And so we are so excited that you all have continued to listen and continue to tune in in a time where there's been the racial justice uprisings, where there's been the political conversations, all our great guests, these conversations that we've had both live and virtually as well. So man, thank y'all so much for rocking with us. And I got to shout out some people Uh, Well, actually I got to shout out some places. All right. Let me shout out some places because everybody's been playing you know, warfare about who's the top PTM city. (laughs) So let me just start with the countries, right? Because we have had at least one PTM download in 143 countries.
1: That is wild.
0: Bro, 143 countries. And I don't know how that's possible, but that's just what the stats say. Now our top 10 countries outside of the US, of course, um, would be Canada, Germany, The UK, South Africa, Australia, France, New Zealand, South Korea, and Japan. What? Yo, (laughs) I I don't know why. I don't know how and why and what happened. But man, if you're listening from one of these cities, please shout us out. Like, please email me, tyler at the witnessBCC.com. I want to shout you out on the podcast personally. And then we got to get to the cities, man. Let's start reverse from 10 up. Number 10 is Seattle which is which is surprising like seattle really okay yeah, cool yeah. like we haven't been out to the west coast we haven't been out to I've the northwest we gotta do
1: that yeah i've been once on my
0: oh, own okay yeah yeah, yeah 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 okay yeah oh that jamar tisby fans gotcha <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Okay, yeah, yeah. uh number nine st louis we gotta get right. out to the loo again yes uh, number eight austin texas hmm. number seven indianapolis okay. indiana okay that was Indeed. surprising number six houston Yep. And then we get into the Pastor Mike Staple Towns, right? So number go. five is D.C. D.C. We love D.C. Number four is Atlanta, the ATL. Of course. Number three is Minneapolis. All right. All right. I'm Very timely and interesting. Okay. <laughs> number two. Okay. These are the top. These are always our top two cities. All right. These are always our top two cities in one order or another. But number two this year was Dallas, Texas.
1: Yep. Okay. I know it's number, number one. one
0: you already know what's number 1, bro. What's number 1? Tell Chicago. us. Chicago. town in, in the house.
1: What's up y'all? Yes, that's my that's my homeland area. I don't claim I grew up in the city, but I am from the okay, Chicago land area, and so I appreciate y'all coming through, showing out among all these cities. I appreciate y'all. S- shout out to Chi-Town.
0: Shout out to Chicago and also shout out to the another mind-blowing stat, 12,302 cities that have listened to podcast the mic. What in the world? I don't understand. Man, y'all are amazing. And yeah. listen, 2021, the theme is that Kobe meme, more. I want more. Mm, mm. So you got to share this, rate it, review it. We are not satisfied and we want to continue giving you a quality product and take it to the next level as well. Yes, so man. I hope Let that this y'all. reflects.
1: That. Y'all don't know since Tyler became president of the BCC, he's on a mission. He's on a mission. He's doing incredible things. Pay attention to the Witness BCC socials. The team over there is absolutely murking it. It's amazing content they're putting out, and Tyler has amazing vision for this. It's going to be an incredible year for, for the BCC, for The Witness, Inc. overall. And a lot of that's due to your leadership, man. So I am thrilled about this.
0: Man, I appreciate you, but listen, you're only as good as your team. And the team has been absolutely phenomenal. Beyond belief. Y'all have to go to the witnessbcc.com right now while you're listening to this podcast and check out some of these articles. We got a trauma laughter post, uh, it's an insurrection. It's hilarious. We have ta- uh, Ali Henney wrote an article about white supremacy. Cedric Lundy wrote an article, um, which I'm a steal for this podcast title, called We have Been Told Y'all. Mm-hmm. Listen, there's so many amazing. We actually compiled reflections from our listeners as well. So you can go and check that out as well. So there's so many amazing things on The Witness, bcc.com. But listen, it's the first episode of 2021. We got to bring some energy to the year. We got to be honest about this. Everything that happened this week, we saw it coming. We saw this coming. We've been told y'all. We've been new. We've been talked about it. And listen, I I had this joke with somebody earlier, like, you know, the no one and then so-and-so says something. I said, no one, like nobody saying anything. And Mm -hmm. then black man, I told you. Like that's what we do, right? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like we be telling, we told y'all, I told you somebody does something. I told you that was going to happen, right? I'm the number one for doing that. But I'm serious, y'all. And not just what happened at the Capitol building in the second half of the week, but we also want to talk about the historic runoff special election in the state of Georgia, a, a state that has historically been, over the past 20 years, a red state, a Republican state. But there was a breakthrough and Jamar actually was able to write an article on the Washington Post entitled Raphael Warnock's win in Georgia is a testament to the power of the black church. So the Reverend Dr. Raphael Warnock won um, against Kelly Leffler, and then also John Ossoff won against David Perdue. So mm-hmm. now we have... Mm-hmm essentially by default, a democratic controlled Senate, which most people said was impossible. Most people said was not going to happen, but there's a reason why we have this. And a large part of the reason is black voters and black church voters in particular. So Jamar, when you wrote this article, talk a little bit about why you believe this is a testament to the power of the black church.
1: This is one of my favorite topics is the black church tradition and history. And so I was able to talk about the way that the black church mobilized in support of a son of the church, uh, Reverend Ralph Raphael Warnock. But I took a historical approach, too. So so one of the things that we always talk about on the show and at The Witness is that within the black church tradition and other traditions arising out of marginalized communities, there's not this sharp bifurc- bifurcation between the spiritual and the material. There's not this sharp divide between the work of the church and the work that has to happen in other areas and other arenas such as politics. And here we see the the melding of the two. So if you listen to Raphael Warnock talk about why he ran for Senate, he says he sees it as an extension of his calling, not a con- contradiction of his calling. And in many ways, the church as an institution has always supported that. So one of my favorite quotes, which uh, people who have read The Color of Compromise will recognize, comes from Charles H. Pierce. He was a black minister who moved to Florida as a missionary to help start new African Methodist Episcopal AME congregations. And he also was a political leader who was elected several times as a state senator in Florida. And he said this, a man in this state cannot do his whole duty as a minister except if he but looks out for the political interests of his people. And so here it just encapsulates and distills this idea that actually part of pastoring, part of pastoral care is to pay attention to the political landscape and ensure that people who have historically been denied rights actually get their rights through the political process, even and including pastors, and church leaders running for office. So I was able to talk a bit about that history, and and I think the bottom line is this, which I didn't get to tease out as much in the article just due to word limits, but the bottom line, I think, is this. A lot of conversation about the modern-day civil rights movement has hovered around the question of, you know, what is the relevance of the Black church? Is the Black church still relevant? Well, I think as we see in this Senate runoff in Georgia and Raphael Warnock's victory. Yes, the Black church is still relevant. Not only relevant, it's indispensable as it remains the central organizing organization and organism within the Black community. Raphael Warnock would not have been able, I don't think, to get elected and to mobilize voters like he did without the help and support of the black church. And I think that remains true, not just in a Georgia Senate runoff race, but nationally too.
0: And so much of what we've talked about when it comes to voter mobilization and registration has centered around black women in Georgia, mobilizing black voters to get them registered, through campaigns, obviously, Tasha Brown with Black Voters Matter, and also Stacey Abrams. And I was listening to this quote earlier this week, listening to this conversation that Stacey Abrams had about her long-term plan for developing voter mobilization and registration in marginalized communities in the state of Georgia and beyond. And she mentioned that the place she went first to build her plan for voter registration was Black church books. So her parents are deeply rooted in the AME. So she looked at church building. So she went to textbooks that talk about how to build a church, casting vision, oh. like mobilizing people. Yeah. So she actually used principles that were utilized and are still utilized in the Black church to build the voting plan, which then led to the, these historic elections and so when we talk about the foundation of the Black church relevancy, we're not just talking about it from a voting perspective, but we're also talking about Black church philosophy as well, yeah. which seeps into not just how someone like Raphael Warnock will govern, hopefully, but beyond that, also talking about how Stacey Abrams and Latasha Brown and, and so many of these other amazing Black women are able to take principles and utilize them on the ground as well to build a wave of people that can vote in concert with their interests. So when I heard that I was like, wow we're sitting on a gold mine which means that this tradition is just as relevant today as it has been in the past. And that's encouraging because people do not understand how much Raphael Warnock is within black church black preaching circles. He's a legendary name, not just because he pastors Legend. Dr. King's church, but also because in, I believe it was 2013, 2012, 2013, he released a book that is still really one of the standards for a conversation about how the black church is operating in society. It's called The Divided Mind of the Black Church. Mm-hmm. And he edited this volume where he brings in a lot of different people who are you know, scholars and stalwarts in the black church. And they talk about what is the Black church's responsibility, the the nature and the mission of the Black church as it relates to its people and society. So are we going to focus on saving souls or transforming the social order? What he likes to say, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, is is our emphasis the slavery of sin or the sin of slavery, Hmm. right? So what is our mission? What is our vision? What is our piety? And so he brings up these really great conversations that are still reverberating today. And in many ways, the conversations have advanced based upon those conversations that they had in the early 2010s. And so now these conversations are obvious, but they weren't as much being had in Black church circles back then. And so when we think about this, I have to tell you, Jamar, I had almost no doubt that he was going to win. I have Mm. to be honest with you. Mm. I, I thought they would split but yeah. the one I thought they would win the entire time was Warnock. Because okay. I said, we know, I know how much when we get behind a candidate and when the black church rallies around a candidate. Some of the creative things I saw were the, the interviews, the live events, the pastors who gathered around for roundtables, uh, different people, celebrities, people doing little ads on, on the little verses series that they're doing with Timbaland and Swiss Beats. I said, there's no way he's going to lose unless there's some massive disenfranchisement. Mm-hmm. And too many people are watching in Georgia. And because people are watching, it's harder to get away with the same level of disenfranchisement as it has been in the past. So it is a testament to the Black church and Black Christian voters as well, because I think we don't understand how much That's seeping into the philosophy of our politics today, and that's only going to be good news and positive results for the future.
1: One more thing I'll add about the power of the Black church when it comes to politics is not just in mobilizing voters, but in developing leaders. And so Raphael Warnock, as a son of the church, he honed his speaking ability. He honed his ability to connect with everyday people. Uh, by being a pastor and attending to the everyday needs of of folks, birth, deaths, illness, marriage issues, all of mm-hmm. those kinds of things. Uh, he honed his uh, vision, ability to cast a vision and develop a vision and communicate that vision. He honed his skills as uh, uh, an organizer, somebody who could mobilize resources toward a cause. And so many of our leaders learned those skills in church whether it's was through singing or preaching or being on the mission board or helping to fundraise or organize a a, a bake sale you name it and historically that has been the function of the black church in particular going all the way back to antebellum days when race-based chattel slavery kept so many of us in bondage. How did we learn leadership? How did we learn how to organize ourselves? So much of that came in and through the Black church. And so still a vital part, not just of mobilizing people and resources, but of actually developing people and leaders.
0: Right. And of course, as we always would say, Winning an election is one thing, governing and leading once you're in office is Mm -hmm. another. Right. So now we have to hold accountable accordingly. And he has certainly a legacy of people to uphold, especially I think of John Lewis. You know, the fact that, you know, John Lewis, as a congressman from the state of Georgia, would have loved to have seen something like this, right? Would have loved to have seen, Hmm. you know, a moment, a historic moment of this kind in his lifetime. But obviously passed away last year but so now we hold accountable but this is undoubtedly historic and it says something for black christian participation in the political process moving forward
2: this episode is brought to you in part by baker publishing group Most of us don't want to spend our lives being time wasters, space takers, binge watchers, or game players. We want to be difference makers, but maybe we make changing the world a little more complex than it really is. Making a difference isn't measured by a viral post or a name on a building. It isn't determined by a following or a fan base. Want to make a difference? Focus on just one person at a time. That's the secret of the way of Jesus. In his newest book, One at a Time, Kyle Edelman invites us to better understand the surprising habits of Jesus and the power of small things done with great love. He challenges true disciples to fully commit to the unexpected Jesus way of changing the world by loving people one at a time. Baker Bookhouse is pleased to partner with Christianity today to offer a special discount on your copy of One at a Time. Visit bakerbookhouse.com by February 28, 2022, and use promo code 12022. That's O-N-E 2022, to receive 40% off with free shipping.
0: Now, with that being said, that was the first part of the week. And of course, as it typically is, whenever there is a moment of Black joy, And whenever there is a moment of black jubilation and celebration, it is often cut short by either a white lash or a dampening of the moment telling us we should not celebrate, we should not be happy. And that was signified on Wednesday when on January 6th, they had the quote unquote, stop the steal rallies Mm. at the US Capitol building. Now, I wanted to root our time in talking about the black church and black Christian tradition because I want to center black people and I want to center black Christians. We try very hard at the witness, not just to comment on everything that happens in the white Christian world. You you haven't heard us necessarily talk exclusively in an episode as much about things like critical race theory or the conversations within the SBC because if we talk about those things, we want it to be black centered. And here in this discussion in this podcast, we also want this to be a black centered discussion, but it is impossible for us to ignore The ramifications nationally and yes, even globally by what happened on Wednesday. And what happened at this rally is these insurrectionists, uh, some of whom were armed, some of whom uh, were violent, uh, many of whom were out of control they stormed the Capitol building. They were acting in (laughs) domestic terror. They were attempting to get inside the the building and actually either hold people hostage or there was a gallows built. There were crosses. There was a Jesus save sign multiple times seen. There were Confederate flags and don't tread on me flags and American flags. And there was violence and people lost their lives. And this was all started by the current president, who unfortunately at this time is still the president of the United States. And he incited this rally, he incited this insurrection, and he incited these people to go and act violently towards uh, people who are upholding democracy. And it was chilling, Jamar. It's funny, we were actually in a meeting together. And hmm. I paused my mic and I just looked up and I was like, Hey, they're storming the Capitol building. And I remember you kind of looked and nodded like, yeah, <laughs> like, it didn't right. register <laughs> I was like, yo, they're storming the Capitol building. He's like, what? Like, what right. are you talking about? So I sent you a, a picture of it, you know, in our chat. And I don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect that. And, I expected there to be reaction, but when you see it, it's utterly surreal, even if it's believable, right?
1: I was flabbergasted. You said that I didn't have a category in my mind for what was actually happening. I mean, foreign governments have not been able to storm the Capitol like that. Even the Confederates during the Civil War only got but so close. And here it is happening in real time. We're seeing videos. We're seeing thousands of people. And I'm just aghast. Like, how could this be? So I was I was in a state of distraction, not just the rest of the day. I would say at least the rest of the week. And right now, I'm not sure that I can quite wrap my head around what we saw on Wednesday, January 6th, 2021. Appalling.
0: Yeah. And I think what gets me is... The iconography that we witness was kind of an amalgam of all the all the 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 images and the icons that we've been talking about on this podcast have so much negative power in the hands of whiteness, right? So we talk about the cross, and we talk about this Christian nationalism and white supremacist religion. We talk about the American flag and how video has come out of a of a DC Metro police officer. Being beaten, I, I believe he eventually dies, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. by a flagpole while they sing the national anthem. And we talked about the Confederate flags and and Confederate monuments. We talked about this Christian symbolism and these cliches that people say, like Jesus saves, while they uh, perpetuate atrocities in the name of Christ. It was a, it was an amalgam of all of that, all in once, and it was whiteness. <laughs> It was overwhelmingly white. There was violence that was done to people, and there were even hang chants, "Hang Mike Pence," that they were intending. Some of them were intending to hang the vice president of the United States, potentially in front of the entire world. Um, I, I don't. I don't know what what category do we have to put this in, Jamar? Because I think it's important for us not to not to miss the moment. But also to judge it rightly, what is this showing about where we're at? It seems like we're, you know, to borrow a a phrase, we're in the end game now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, look, we cannot overemphasize or underestimate the threat level here. Because this is just what we saw. I mean, to mobilize and organize this event beforehand... And it was a surprise to many of us, though it shouldn't have been and it wasn't a complete surprise to law enforcement in spite of their paltry response. So anyway, this is just what we know about. And I'm a little concerned. I think it's the right thing to do, booting these folks off of mainstream platforms, because we saw, Wednesday precisely what they're capable of. And we absolutely cannot mm-hmm. let them continue to spout lies and uh make, I can't even call them threats because they carried them out in this case. And I'm sure they're perfectly willing to do more. But at the same time, now they're going underground and who knows what they're plotting out of sight. So this is what I say. When Every year, the, the Department of Homeland Security issues a report called the Domestic Threat Assessment. This past October, 2020, they issued their report and they said that the biggest domestic threat was white supremacist extremists, which is exactly the people who stormed the Capitol. <laughs>
0: We've been said it. We've been talking about
1: told this. y'all. This is, and, and, and here's the thing, here's the kicker. Throughout this whole thing, white Christians, Republican politicians, who have they been saying is the threat? Oh, it's, it's immigrants coming from the Mexican border. Better separate kids and parents, put them in cages. Who's the threat? Oh, it's Islamic ish- extremists coming into our country and they hate America and they want to, to destroy everything. But what does the data actually say? And what does this administration's own Department of Homeland Security say? White supremacist extremists, which is what mm-hmm. we've been done told y'all.
0: And, you know, I think I think something else that's very important to recognize, and it's obvious, but I think we should say it, that if this had been <laughs> my brown uprising on. or a Black uprising that had rushed the steps of the Capitol building, after a non-indictment of a police officer who murdered one of us in the streets on camera, it would have been a mass shooting, a mass execution, yes, yes. A, a mass arrest. There would have been a bloody display, not an acquiescent display. And I think it says something about the ways in which we approach and the ways in which we treat white supremacy, because inherently Amen. our country has always been afraid of it. So so what did people say? What did people say? They said, well, we, we didn't want to exacerbate the crowd, or we didn't want to cause something where it turned into an explosive situation. What are people saying now? Well, we don't want to inflame Trump even more. <laughs> so so, let's stay away from banning him from certain things and let's not push for impeachment because it'll just fan the flames of this. It'll make him a martyr. And listen, I understand where that's coming from, but at what point do, do people in this country stand up and say, enough is enough. And until that happens collectively, we repent for what has come before as white Americans. And beyond that, we stand together to say no more white supremacy in our space. And until that happens, we are going to be overrun. And it was so fascinating to watch these police officers. And I know some people have talked about the context of it, but it was a striking image nonetheless of seeing them kind of back away, right? Just yeah. kind of backed away from the barricades because they were like, oh, we're, we're outnumbered and this is going to happen. And oh, oh, no. I and, and I get that in that moment for them, but this is a... A symbol of our country, and let's get specific: the white evangelical church has treated racism for quite some time. You know, come on in. uh, It's fine. We don't want to bother you too much. We don't want to, we don't want to get on your nerves. We don't want to mess with you. We don't want to lose your your financial contributions. So you know what? Just come on in. But hey, stop while you do it. Okay, okay, don't don't do that. Okay. But keep Uh, going, keep going. Come on, come on, keep going. Okay, but you can't call you can't say that. But okay, keep going, keep going. I'm like, how is this?
1: That's the perfect <laughs> the analogy. way in which
0: we're treating white supremacy. Because
1: because 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 why don't we discipline racism in these churches? Because exactly, cause we don't, don't want to make people too mad we don't want to we don't want to rock the but we don't want a church split even though we say racism is a sin we're not actually going to treat it like a sin we just sort of we sort of accommodate it we make room for it dare i say we, we compromise with it <laughs> and are complicit yes, with yes. it and 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 here's the other thing that struck me Tyler we always talk on this show about the value of black life and how the United States, including white Christians have devalued black life. But another way to understand it is from the flip side. As, as we talk about the devaluing of black life, what we saw at the insurrection was the premium placed on white life, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. absolute premium placed on the life and the bodily integrity of white people such that those who are charged with protecting our nation's capital while our legislators are inside basically pave the way and open the gates because they value white life so highly. And then the flip side of valuing certain lives at the pinnacle of life Is the devaluing of other life, namely black life. And we already know, we already know what would have happened had those folks been black and brown. They wouldn't have gotten within the shadow of the Capitol. As a matter of fact, we already saw that in 2020 when there were protests in DC. And the president himself ordered law enforcement to clear away peaceful protesters with force and with tear gas so he could have a photo op in front of a church without permission. Holding up a Bible, holding up a Bible. So, so my favorite phrase lately, Tyler, is "It's the blank for me." It's the blank for me. So it'll be <laughs> right. it'll yes, be a yes. picture. It'll be a song. Yes. It'll be whatever. And and I can't decide in this ins- insurrection what it is for me. It, it, it's the gallows for me, a literal gallows, mm-hmm. real rope, real wood. It's the it's the Jesus twenty twenty signs for me. It's the cross that they carried for me. It's the black police officers being targeted and calling called the N-word for me. I can't decide. It's, it's the insurrection for me. It's all of it.
0: it. It's the feet on top of the desk. Oh. It's the we're going to take stuff out with a smile on our faces and pose for pictures. It's the chance. It, it's, it's the audacity. It's all of that. And let me talk about one thing that that I was was pondering as this was happening, and it's the way in which the Christian iconography is meshed in between this.
1: That's right. And some of the
0: ways in which the Christian expression and how Christians uh, talk about moments like these, right? There was a moment in 2017 after Charlottesville, the Unite the Right uh, rally, when... That weekend, I was scheduled to preach at a church, and I think I've told this story before, but I haven't told this part of it. I was scheduled to preach at a, a white church in town, and you know, I was agonizing on Friday night uh, because they did the, you know, you will not replace us, Jews will not replace us, et cetera, mm-hmm. and I was agonizing in that moment because I was like, this is very serious. But Saturday morning. I took a deep breath after the confrontation there, and then Heather Heyer, of course, being killed. And I reached out to the pastor and I said, hey, man, listen, (laughs) I think you know me pretty well. I cannot stand in a pulpit tomorrow, especially where there's a majority of white members and congregants and not talk about Charlottesville. So I said, here's what I can do. I'm going to type up what I'm going to say to you or going to say to them so that you can see it. I don't want to violate the house. I'm a good Pentecostal preacher boy, so I understand protocol and order, but I I need to say something about this. And we can talk through what I say. I just want you to have what I say. I'm not going to riff. I'm not going to do any of that, but it needs to be included within this sermon because this is a very important moment. And so to his credit, he said, listen, man, I trust you. Be led by God. Just preach. So I said, okay, bet. So I said what I said, you know, and it went pretty well, <laughs> and this is, this is the ironic part I'll talk about later, how they responded. But in the third service, some people got up and walked out as soon as I said white supremacy, which is, which is normal, it's fine. But in all three services, the people did something very interesting, and it was kind of symbolized by this one older white gentleman who came up to me after the first service. And he said, in his Southern draw, he said, listen, what you said was spot on. Now, I was by myself, which is, you know, a cardinal no-no. We talk about white supremacy, you yep, know you're supposed to be by yep. yourself, but I didn't want it to be me and my wife. So I was just like, right, you stay home. <laughs> so normally i have a squad with me, but I didn't that day. And so I didn't know how he was going to react. I didn't know what that was going to be, but he did. You know, he said, I really appreciate what you said. It was spot on. I said, oh, well, thank you, sir. He said, and you know what? And they kind of shifted the conversation. Here we go. That's why we need to get back to God in schools. That's why we need to turn back to God. Yeah. That's why we need to do this and we need to do that. That's the issue. That's the real problem. And you know what's so funny, Jamar? Is something clicked in me in that moment. And what carried it home was in the next two services, after I said what I said, people clapped. And I said, Oh, this is interesting. Because y'all don't think this is about you.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yes.
0: You don't think that the scriptures that confront you are about you. You think they're about someone else. And so I said, isn't it funny how white evangelicals and white Christian expression in the American church has taught us to only utilize the scriptures from a place of authority. Hmm. We only use the scriptures in authority towards someone else to either silence them or show them why they're wrong. But we never approach the scriptures with a, with a, what Lisa Fields calls a humble hermeneutic,
1: hmm.
0: enough to realize that the scriptures we're reading might also be reading us. And so here's what we do. We throw around scriptures with authority against people who we consider to be inferior to us, and the true testament to whether or not we're using scripture is whether or not we think that person or those people are inferior. So we talk about quote unquote, the world, the world needs to do this. We talk about the culture, the culture needs to do this. We talk about this group, of, this group of people needs to do this. We Men, we talk about women, women need to do this. And we throw scriptures at them to silence them versus saying these scriptures, ourselves, these scriptures for ourselves actually indict us. They indict our actions. So what is the the common phrase that people are using, the common verse? If my people who are called by my name will humble Mm -hmm. themselves and pray, Mm -hmm. seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven? How can we turn from our wicked ways if we don't acknowledge that our ways are wicked? And what people have been taught to do, black Christians, you have to hear this and understand this, because whenever you are in a conversation with white Christians, I'm starting to notice this, and it's getting me, Jamar. Because whenever I'm in a conversation with white Christians, they do not think it applies to them. 100%. That's why they respond in that way. That's true. They respond in that way because they've only been taught to utilize the scriptures as a tool of authority over other people. And whenever you solely use the scriptures as a tool of authority, it leads to abuse yep. every single time. People are hurt, folks leave, bodies are harmed. And yes, people get killed. And so what tends to happen is we go into these places and we speak and we preach and people agree with us. They agree because nobody's telling them, no, you're clapping. I don't know why you're clapping. This is about you. (laughs) What what do you mean? You're the man. Exactly. You're the woman. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's you. And so what I'm seeing here is that people have not been confronted. And so what what happens whenever these things, whenever these issues occur, these instances occur, what are people doing? Well, they they run back to their Christian cliches because it can't be them. We couldn't have been the ones who let this happen. I know my heart. I'm a good person. And what, what black Christians endure is gaslighting. Black Christians get gaslit to the hills and back. Because every time we speak and utilize scriptures, people are parsing whether or not we have the right to use those scriptures. Hmm. Because only they are the ones who have authority over the scriptures. We We don't have the right to deploy the scriptures from authority. That's the real offense. The real offense is not that we are saying things that people disagree with. Understand this. The real offense is that people like Jamar and I and others, so many others, are deploying the scriptures with authority <laughs> and <laughs> humility. They are offended that we are using it. We don't have the right to do that. Nobody, who authorized y'all to do that? That's so right. let's go call your elders. Let's go call your pastors. Who can we call? Because it's like, these people can't have
1: authority. authority. You cannot you have
0: given them you. the right. And so I'm noticing this, Jamar, because 2021 has, it has got to be different for black Christians. And if it is not different for Black Christians, we are going to continue to be abused. Now I know we say the same thing every single year. We're going to keep saying it a different way. In twenty twenty one, tell them, and then when they come back to you, say we've been told y'all what it is. Bye.
1: <laughs>
0: we got to get out of places that are only using the scriptures. And in... if if people if the response if the response from the church where you attend is more out there than in in here. Mm-hmm. That's a problem, y'all. If it's a predominantly white church, they got issues. <laughs> we need to talk about it. Listen, we need to repent. Uh, we, we may not ourselves have participated in this, but at some point in time, we were complicit in it. Mm. And repentance is the highest order. And repentance is something that we must do right now. And I'm not asking them To give away everything that they have and to to step down and to resign, although some do need to. I'm not asking them to close down their churches, although some should. That's not what I'm asking. I'm not speaking in a blanket way. I'm saying if the response is not at least, let us come together and repent for the ways in which we have been adjacent to this. Something wrong, y'all. You're gonna get abused. In that place, you will be gaslit. In that place, I promise you that if you talk about justice and you go against the grain, there will be hell to pay. So I didn't mean to get into all that, but here we
1: are. <laughs> we got it. We it's um, past uh, the
0: mic, so it's, yeah. it's new energy. So it just no. is what it is. All that to say, we've been told, y'all. Go ahead, Jamar.
1: I had a uh, a semi-viral tweet, like two thousand retweets, the day of this uprising, this this insurrection. And, and it was simple. I said, don't miss the religious elements of what's happening at the Capitol. They said, critical race theory is the biggest threat. What they're showing us is that Christian nationalism is and has been the biggest threat, not only to Christianity in the US, but to democracy itself. And that really resonated with people because I think a lot of folks could could were beginning to grasp this. But the frequent question and rebuttal I got to that Message is what is Christian nationalism and where did you see it in this insurrection? And
0: it yeah, is <laughs> a, a lot of people. I just want to say this because this was also the critique that people were given to the fact that we call this a white supremacist insurrection on the witness. People are like, well, where's the white supremacy? Oh, <laughs> go ahead. Talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> um,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. So, so the fundamental problem is. You, when you're a fish, you don't know what water is. It's in the air. Come on. You're so close to it. You're so steeped in it that it seems normal. And so to call out white supremacist Christian nationalism is, to many white Christians, just plain old Christianity. It's what they understand as regular, normal mainstream Christianity. But why? Because they grew up with the American flag in the pulpit. Because they grew up with people saying that uh, uh, America is a Christian nation. And as Christianity and the church goes in this nation, so goes the nation itself, because they equate the two as as one-to-one, that America is the city on the hill rather than the church itself. It doesn't register with people because they grew up thinking that to to vote Republican was the only Christian way to vote, and that all the Democrats were just baby killers, and anybody who sympathized with them, they didn't have the true gospel. There's that authority again, because if you don't agree with our political stance, we can say you're heterodox, your theology is wrong. You need to come and be like us. This is what we saw in the Georgia Senate race with Leffler and Warnock, both Christians, but a very different kind in expression. So Leffler levels attacks at Warnock for preaching what is common in Black churches, and not at all outside of the mainstream, but it was outside of her Christian nationalist mainstream. And so this is the problem. This is why your conversations with your pastors and your church leaders and your church members and even your family members don't work, is because the Christian nationalist version of Christianity is the only kind of Christianity they know. And it's not even Christianity because it's adding to the gospel, which is no gospel at all. So, so if you have folks who don't even recognize they're in error, how would you ever be able to gently correct them? How would you ever? Yeah. So, so this is to white folks, those of you who are concerned about racial justice, you are more connected in these networks than black folks and people of color will ever be. Your burden of responsibility is different. I can't say when you should stay or when you should go but to black folks. Here's what I say. If in this moment, January 2021, as we're recording this, your church has a muted response, a deflection, a both sides-ism, or as King would say, is spouting pious irre- irrelevancies and vain trivialities, just these these generalities, denouncing violence and whatnot, but but not actually specifically and overtly and explicitly condemning these this insurrection. I don't have much hope you're going to make any difference there. Why? Because we've seen too much at this point. It's been four plus years of this presidency. It's been it's been event after event and protest after protest. They've been knowing, and now they need to change. And if they have not changed at this point, if they're not really even bending much, what do you think it's going to take? I, I all I'm saying is, the Lord is sifting the church. And people are declaring very clearly which side of justice they're on. And if in this moment you're you're sort of clinging to that hope, I mean, God can do anything. I'm just saying this is a moment of moral clarity, unlike others in the past few years. And if folks are still being recalcitrant, they want to be there.
0: Absolutely, man. And we make this plea to the Black Christians who are listening because what's coming from the witness and from Pastor Mike will require you to think more expansively about your your own personal identity, your own experience, and your own freedom. You cannot do that in one breath and then in another space be receiving contrary ideals. (laughs) like You just can't. And so we want truly for Black Christians to be free in their souls and their bodies. And... When it comes to that, that means we have to make hard choices because our world is not set up for the promotion of that. Our world is not set up to educate, encourage, and empower Black Christians. That is not what it's supposed to be. The church is not set up for that. And so because of that, we must make the hard choices ourselves, for our families, for our well-being, for our peace of mind. I had this conversation with uh, my wife a couple of days ago, actually, where someone said something about me joining another church at one point in time a couple of years ago and I just kind of laughed and I just shook my head and I just said, We would have been so miserable. I don't know what would have happened to us. Wouldn't be at the witness. I know that for a fact. I don't know if we'd be married. <laughs> like seriously. Like let's be let's be honest. Like racial injustice, it gets into everything. It wears you down. Like, it destroys your identity, your sense of self. I don't know, man. I don't know where we would have been. But I think of my brothers and sisters who are still in those spaces. And once again, y'all know what I say. Don't negotiate your dignity. It's time, y'all. It's 2021. And don't think because the conversation dies down that the situation, the reality has died down. It has not. Even if things, quote unquote, get back to normal, they're not normal. It's a false piece. So we say, y'all know, and we've been told them. So now it's time that we get out. Now it's time that we move on from it. And so that's why, hey, we said we we're going to do a podcast. It's going to be our last word on it. We're going to keep it moving. <laughs> now we're going to talk about Black Christian stuff. But We had to do at least one podcast because it was important for us to name these things for those who are still yet coming in and who are still on that journey to say, my brother, my sister, you're worth more than that and we're going to keep saying it.